Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 27 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery of near-death experiences. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. We'd like to get right into this episode and uh, really get into this topic, which uh, many of you, when you heard we were going to do it, have uh, expressed some interest in. So, because it's such a fascinating idea. what What is it like to die? What happens at the moment of our death, not just after death, like in heaven or our judgment or that sort of thing, but when we die. And some people have claimed to have experienced death and to have come back to talk about it. Um, they, some people have even been clinically dead in hospital, but when they were resuscitated, they reported experiences like being out of their body, seeing their body from floating above their body in an operating room or uh, moving through a tunnel and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel or encountering beings of light. And all of this has been called into the umbrella of near-death experiences, or NDEs. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about today on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, uh, what is it that is claimed about uh, near-death experience? Well, the claim is that when people die, they have uh, NDEs with a common set of experiences, commonly reported experiences, including waking up, and in an in a in a room looks kind of like an office, you know, maybe. And on the wall in front of you, it says <laughs> everything is fine. <laughs> or some people, like Australians, everything is bonzer or yes. everything is great. Yeah, <laughs> that's if you uh, happen to be a fan of the Good Place. Uh, the TV Good show. Place, yes, <laughs> which is a TV show set in the afterlife. That's right. Um, no, uh, so everything is fine. Maybe what most people feel, but you don't actually see it written on a wall of an office. Right. Um, but uh, people do report um, experiencing, you know, dying can be traumatic physically. Uh, and so uh, that not for everybody. Some people, you know, just kind of gently fade away. But uh, sometimes it's painful, like if you're having a heart attack and um, people it, report experiencing the pain or the emotional distress of the dying process suddenly stopping and being uh, replaced by feelings of peace and happiness and joy. Uh, they may report seeing a tunnel or moving through a tunnel, which uh, may have dark, which it may be dark or it may have colors on the walls of the tunnel. Uh, they sometimes report moving towards a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, they report floating above their bodies and seeing and hearing medical professionals working on them. Uh, they report meeting deceased relatives who welcome them. Uh, they also report meeting other beings that they interpret as angels. And frequently they'll report meeting a, a particularly important being of light who radiates a feeling of love. Mm. Um, they sometimes report being given a review of the events of their lives where they feel the impact of what they did to other people in their lives. So it's this moment of intense empathy for other people 
based on their own actions. And they um, they then sort of pass judgment on themselves, you know, about their moral character. Um, they report seeing a beautiful place like a garden or a crystal city. They sometimes encounter a limit that they understand is a point of no return. And they uh, sometimes desire to return, like if they have loved ones, like maybe you have uh, it's a parent, they have children they want to care for, or they'll just be told you need to return. And sometimes they don't want to because they, it's so beautiful. Um, but one way or another, they uh, end up returning, they come back to their body and then report waking up in the hospital. And so these are the commonly reported experiences. Not everybody re reports all of these. Um, they, um, uh, many people report only a few of them, mm -hmm. um, but this is the common set of things that get reported. And the claim is that these are authentic accounts of what happens to us immediately after death, and that they are therefore evidence of the afterlife. Okay, so that's the claim. Uh, what are the counterclaims uh, against these claims? Well, the fundamental counterclaim is that they're not evidence of the afterlife. And there are the question is then how do you what alternative explanation do you provide for these things? One possible explanation is some of the reports are just people lying. Right. You know, people lie. Maybe yep. they lie about this. Um, another uh Another proposed explanation is these are these experiences are produced by wishful thinking as a kind of psychological defense mechanism against the reality of death. OK. Um, another is that they're produced by cultural contamination, that the idea of near death experiences and what they're like is out there in the culture. And so um, people may be expecting this or it may these ideas, these claims may influence people to think they've had an experience like this. Right. Um, it could be that some of these that some of these experiences are dreams. You know, we spend a lot of our lives having experiences that seem real at the time, but actually aren't. So maybe <clears throat> the dream mechanism in the dying brain produces these things. Um, it could be if it's not the dream mechanism. It could be something else uh, physiological that induces a hallucination, something about right. the way the brain shuts down could induce hallucinations of this nature. Uh, it could be that these are false memories developed after the person has been resuscitated because there is a false memory phenomenon that is known, you know, uh, like uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, there was that whole rash of uh, so-called repressed memories that people were trying to recover. And they would remember things like being abused as a child and they'd forgotten this because they uh, it was too traumatic. And then under psychological counseling, they remembered it, quote unquote. Right. Turned out all that was fake. Um, but people, they were brought to a state where they thought they remembered things, hmm. even though th it hadn't happened. Um, and, uh, uh, and there are other theories as well. You can check out Wikipedia for, uh, for those. We'll have a link in the show notes, but right. those are the basic counterclaims. Those are some of the more popular explanations of what these, what these experiences are if they're not evidence of an afterlife. Okay. And these are all things that are, um, th that are purported to be happening, uh, during a de experience of dying. 
Uh, yeah, that's the, either e- either before, either either during. It's something that happens while you're dying, or the memories get generated, or the lies get generated after you've been brought back. Okay, all right. So, uh, what are we? What are the facts uh, that are available to us on this? What do we know about this? Well, we've only been able to resuscitate people from clinical death since about 1960. Um, before that, the technology didn't exist, and there were reports of um, like these that go way back into history. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they the, uh, the person didn't clinically measurably die in a, in a hospital and then get brought back the way that it happens now, but people did have experiences where they almost died, and even though you couldn't say, well, now they're clinically dead, they almost died and they had experiences like this. Can I ask, uh-huh. what, what do we mean by clinical death to specify? So um, clinical death is a really thorny subject that can be defined more than one way. But okay. the key test is your heart stops. Okay. And without your heart pushing the blood through your veins, your brain will shut down within seconds of the cease of your of the stopping of your heart, like 30 seconds maximum, your brain shuts down. And okay. so you have a cessation of mental function as well. Everything goes dark and um, you don't have brainwave activity. Okay. All right. Just because uh, I think that's probably going to be an important uh, element yes. in, in this discussion. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so go ahead. And what, what other facts are, are so, in evidence? So in 1975, a, uh, a, a guy named Raymond Moody, who's a psychologist or psychiatrist, wrote a book where he had studied these experiences. The book was called Life After Life. And this book became the thing that popularized near-death experiences. I remember reading it back in mm-hmm. 75. It was a huge rage. And um, one of the things that Moody brought out and has been subsequently brought out by other research is that these things happen all over the world. This is not just something unique to our culture. Uh, they happen to people of all religions. Uh, and they happen to people who are not religious, the okay. people who expect, oh, I'm going to die and that's going to be it. And then they have a near-death experience. Um, as I mentioned, not everybody reports the same experiences and not everyone reports them happening in exactly the same order. Uh, some people report only a few. Some of them report uh, like the tunnel being at a different point in their experience. Some of them will say it seems to be associated with leaving your body is like going through a tunnel. Others will say, no, I was out of my body. And then I went through the tunnel to meet the beings of light. Um, So there's, there's some confusion about the exact order in which things happen. If these things are happening Um, because of people's different religious backgrounds, they interpret the experiences differently. Uh, In the case of meeting like the one luminous being that radiates love, uh, like Jewish people will say, okay, that's God. Mm-hmm. Christians will come back and say, that was Jesus. Uh, people who don't have a religion will come back and say, it was an unknown being that radiated love. Okay. Um, so they have different interpretations of these. Also, you get some different claims, uh, like people will he- claim to hear things, like facts will be or statements will be made to them by supernatural figures either their dead relatives or angels or the being of love they'll they'll say things to them um and sometimes they're not always consistent with the christian faith sometimes people will come back and say 
oh, yeah, I was told that I was going to have a baby, but the soul for the baby was hesitant to be born. And so it's going to reincarnate somewhere else. Okay. Um, so not all of the data is consistent with Christian experience, with Christian faith, even though a lot of it is. Right. Uh, so we know that happens. One of the things that's very common in the, uh, for people who have these experiences is they have a change of values when they come back. They report feeling much more compassion for other people. They report feeling a greater sense of purpose in their lives, that there's something they're here to accomplish. They feel less materialistic. They are not as concerned about property and consumer gadgets and stuff like that. They're more concerned about ethical, emotional, spiritual values, and they're less afraid of death. Because they say, I've been there. It wasn't bad. I know what it's going to be now, and I'm comfortable with it now. Okay. So they they re- report having a changed life experience as a result of the near-death experience. Recently, there have been uh, some studies done. One of, one of the most famous studies is called the, and it's not the only one, okay. but one of the most famous studies is called the AWARE study. Uh, this was done by a... Um, uh, is headed by a guy named Sam Parnia, who is a physician, uh, who's worked in England and the United States. And he became interested in near-death experiences. And so he set up this AWARE study. It deals with um, awareness. The name is based on awareness during resuscitation. So these are all people who have clinically died, their heart has stopped, and then they got revived. And uh, of the people in who so most people whose heart stop unfortunately it doesn't restart most of the time so uh they they had thousands of cases of people whose heart stopped and of the survivors they then who they were able to interview uh they had kind of a two stage interview process an initial kind of cursory interview and then a more detailed interview uh usually when the person was still in the hospital so the memories were still fresh um, and of the people who they who survived the NDE, ninety percent of them did not have uh, who survived cardiac arrest. Ninety percent of them did not report having an NDE. So ninety percent of them said it's just a gap. I don't remember anything. Nine percent of them do say I had some of these experiences. Um, the reason why there's that difference is not understood. One of the hypotheses that they have is when um, when when you die physically, your brain experiences trauma. And interestingly, it's not simply from the cessation of blood flow. It's really largely when the blood flow comes back. Um, it causes brain inflammation. And so this trauma to the brain is known to cause amnesia. And the worse the trauma is, the worse the amnesia is. And so one of their hypotheses, and they're now doing another study called AWARE 2, where they're, uh, which we'll talk about, um, they're trying to see, is there a correlation between the length of time that the person was dead and how much they remember afterwards? Because the theory is, if you're dead for longer, then when they get your heart restarted, it's going to cause more trauma and more inflammation to the brain. And so they think the people who were revived the quickest 
may be the ones who were able to retain memories of the near-death experience and that they get wiped out uh, in the case of people who were dead for longer periods of time and have more trauma and more brain inflammation. Okay. Okay. Um, and mm-hmm. we, we know that the trauma of all kinds, all kinds of physical trauma can cause uh, uh, amnesia, not just, you know, uh, loss of blood flow to the brain, but like right. any kinds of trauma can well, cause... the classic sitcom thing, you get hit on the head, you know, right. you lose your memory. By the way, that ever happens to anybody, do not hit the person on the head another time. It will not make their memory come back. <laughs> no. This isn't a toggle <laughs> on-off thing. No, it is not. Uh, you'll yeah. probably kill them if you hit them again. Yeah. Fact, frankly, you might kill somebody the first time you hit them in the head. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that um, just... A few more statistics on that they were able to gather from the AWARE study. So 9% of the people reported NDEs of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reported some of these experiences. 2% described awareness with explicit recall of seeing and hearing actual events related to their resuscitation. So these are the people mm-hmm. that said, I was floating above my body in the operating room and or in the emergency room, and I saw and heard the people working on me to try to restart my heart. So that's about 2% of people report that. Okay. Um, of the 101 survivors who they did it, their stage two more advanced interview with um, one had a verifiable period of consciousness of conscious awareness during the time that cerebral function was not expected. So what that means is this person um, said, I remember seeing and hearing what happened when my heart was shut down and my brain was shut down hmm. and they were able to verify that because the person said, here's what happened, and that was what happened. Um, now, the counter argument to that would be, well, maybe the person had minimal brain function that was undetectable or something, and they they right. overheard it that way. But And they imagined, you know, seeing what was happening based on the sounds. Um, so it's not proof, but it is it is an interesting statistic, and it is significant that they found somebody out of the, you know, 101, uh, they did find that had the stage two interviews, they did find one person who they could actually verify something this person said happened during the period their heart and brain were shut down. And the total number of people in this study, uh, it's in the, the, yeah, it's in the thousands. 2060, I think is is, uh, what I'm I'm seeing here. So, uh, so one out of the 2060 had this, but which doesn't make it, less believable it just no that's why they're doing follow-up studies is yeah. because you know this these are the i mean a lot of raymond moody's work was based on just interviews with people who said they had these experiences and he's kind of relying on them but he's not like going into their medical records and stuff right here and verifying they had this cardiac arrest here that's what they're doing they're trying to do gold standard research we are only looking at people who we know their heart stopped and uh and and what are their experiences while okay. they're still in the hospital and so forth? Okay. So um, from the reason perspective, as we examine the, these claims and the counterclaims, uh, what is it we can uh, deduce? Well, um, so the big question is, are these, are these evidence of an afterlife? And the, you kind of have to proceed in the Sherlock Holmes way of whatever's impossible, you eliminate that. And if there's something left, then that has to be true. So can we eliminate some of these based on the hypothesis that some of these people are lying? Yes. 
we know of cases where that is exactly what happened. There was a very famous book in uh, the that came out in 2010. It was very famous in the Christian book market. Yep. It was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, and it was by Kevin and Alex Malarkey. Um, it is it were father and son. Okay. It is ironic their last name is <laughs> Malarkey because yes, it, it turned out that's what the book was. Uh, the son who was the one that claimed to have died and he did clinically die and then come back. Um, he retracted the claims in 2015. He said, I, I made it up for, to get attention. I was a kid. And, um, and there's some question about, you know, did he have some coaching in that regard? But, um, but he took responsibility and said, I, I was, you know, I was a kid. I made it up to get attention. So some people do lie and profit motive, whether it's it's whether it's uh, profiting in terms of attention or whether it's profiting in terms of cold, hard cash by writing your book. Both of those can be can be motives. If you've clinically mm -hmm. died in the hospital and you get resuscitated, anybody could fake this stuff and right. write a book like this. So um, so that is something we have to watch out for. And that does explain some of the reports. But most people who have these experiences do not go on to write books, and they don't go on to seek fame and profit. In fact, a lot of times, according to some of these people, they like hesitate to tell anybody about these things. And if they do, it's just like a few people, like their close relatives, their loved ones or something. But a lot of people, especially formerly, would be afraid of being scorned. Or some of these claims, and right. so sometimes they're actually deterred from from reporting them. So if someone's someone's lying; they're doing it because they want attention. They're, they're not going to lie for any of the other reasons we're going to probably examine. But but lying right. specifically is a an attempt to get an attention. Yeah. Conscious okay. deception is usually going to be to get attention or money. Okay. Um, so then that leads us to the wish fulfillment hypothesis, that this is some kind of psychological defense mechanism against the reality of death. Um, well, if that were true, we, and, and it may explain some things, but if it were true in general, we wouldn't expect to have such consistency between these experiences unless there were some common source of input. So that's going to take us in a moment to the cultural contamination theory, but you wouldn't expect wish fulfillment to generate this common core set of things. Mm -hmm. um, also, individuals often report things that conflict with their own personal religious and other expectations of what death is going to be like. So, like I mentioned, people who are not religious coming back and saying, I didn't think there was going to be anything, and here's what happened. Right. Um, you'll also have other people who will have some particular theory of the afterlife and they come back and say, well, that didn't happen. It was this other thing. And so um, it, it, it's, if it was wish fulfillment, you would expect it to fulfill their expectations about an afterlife. Well, what if there is some common source of input, the cultural contamination theory? You would expect then these common core of experiences to not predate Moody's work, because that was the popular book, Life After Life. You would expect the contamination to really spread from there, 
and it would spread in English and and whatever other languages that the book has been translated into in those countries where it's been published. But it's not. You get the same kind of reports um, from uh, from all over the place, including from before Moody's work was published. And the older reports uh, are consistent with the newer ones, although um, reports of the tunnel have become more common since Life After Life came out. Mm. But other aspects, quite consistent. Um, also, uh, NDEs are reported by people who have not heard about NDEs. So there are people who don't know about you know this phenomenon. They've never heard about it. They've never read about it. And then it happens to them. Right. And so that's evidence that runs contrary to explaining all of this by cultural contamination. Um, also, these things get reported by children. And, you know, sometimes early life can be dangerous. And um, consequently, sometimes children, even very small children, uh, have, will have cardiac arrest and be brought back or otherwise clinically die and come back. And, um, and they also report NDEs. Uh, even though you wouldn't expect them to know about NDEs or the specific phenomena associated with them. One of the things that's interesting is children tend not to report having life reviews or meeting deceased relatives. Hmm. And both of those could be explained by the fact that children are young, because right. if they're young, they probably don't have deceased relatives that they know. Right. And if they're young, they haven't lived long enough to have a big life review or to have major made major decisions that had impacts on other people. Right. Right. Of course. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then we come to the dream uh, hypothesis. And um, dreams are... I mean, you know, as as with these others, maybe it explains some of the accounts, but it doesn't seem to explain them generally because when the brain when the heartbeat stops, the brain shuts down within seconds. And dreams take a while, especially lengthy dreams. Um it's not true. I mean, there's some kind of an urban legend uh that I've at least heard some people say that like you experience a whole dream in like half a second. And that is not true. Dreams track in real time. So oh. if you're if you have a dream that takes five minutes to experience in the dream, it took five minutes for that to play out in your brain. And so um, you could not have a multi minute experience of a dream when, you know, I, I was in the body. I, then I was in, out of the body. Then I was watching them talk about me as they're working on me. Then I go through this tunnel. Then I meet the being of light and I see stuff. I did in my life and then I'm told I have to come back and then I come back and you know you that that's a multi-minute experience hmm. and there's no way you could have a dream that is minutes long when you when your brain has shut down because of lack of blood flow within seconds okay also dreams are way more chaotic than this yeah. common core set of things. Yeah. Uh, people should be coming back and saying, yeah, I was in Sweden. I was on vacation and there was a giant frog that was attacking the <laughs> Eiffel Tower that was in <laughs> Stockholm for some reason. <laughs> right, right. You know, so you if this were just dreams, you wouldn't expect the kind of consistency that we see across these reports. Especially given that that at the moment of death, people are under intense 
unusual stress, and stress will affect the content of dreams. Yeah, I mean, you would you might expect some stress induced content, but you wouldn't expect what we're getting. Right, there wouldn't be this consistent uh, uh, content of of the 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 tunnel and and the light and that sort of thing. There would be all kinds of craziness. I mean, when I have right. stress, stress dreams, there's all kinds of craziness that goes on. Yeah, it would be I was naked at work and I had forgotten the final exam. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that brings us to the physiologically induced hallucination hypothesis. Could there be something about the dying process that causes people to have experiences like this? So it's not random, like a dream. There is a mechanism or a set of mechanisms that induce these kind of experiences. Well, one thing that has turned up in the data is that NDEs, you know, sometimes they happen to intoxicated people. You know, you, mm -hmm. people get drunk and they have a heart attack and or they get high and they have a heart attack. And when the person is intoxicated, they do report uh, more bizarre and confused experiences that can display kind of hallucinatory characteristics. The So there, you know, you have some evidence here of uh, you've introduced a physiological change in the person with this substance whatever it is, and then they have a distorted, atypical NDE. Right. Um, so what produces that? Well, okay, um, it doesn't rule out that they're having a genuine experience, but since they've introduced a, a mind-altering chemical into their, into their body, um, it could, when they come back, assuming NDEs are real, when they come back, that chemical is likely still there. Right. Or was is messing with their ability to assimilate the memories of what happened on a physiological level, because those memories are now going to get encoded into the brain. And if the brain is under the influence of a drug that affects the mind, then it can interfere with memory formation and cause you to have a bizarre, bizarre set of memories regarding whatever it was that happened to you. So okay. that doesn't seem to indicate strongly one way or the other. Um there have been proposals that um, that physiological things produce these experiences, uh, maybe brain damage, the way the brain certain areas you know get damaged, it causes you to have these experiences, or certain neurotransmitters get released as the brain is dying or as the brain is being revived with all that inflammation, or that there are other chemical things that happen like uh, when, you know, when the blood flow stops, you experience hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen to the brain. Mm -hmm. And people have said, hey, guess what? Hypoxia, like in airplane pilots, you know, their oxygen system goes out, they can hallucinate. Um, and, you know, maybe your brain is releasing endorphins. You're in a painful situation. Maybe your brain is trying to release endorphins to get you out of pain. And right. that's causing you to hallucinate. Or... Maybe the drugs that the doctors are pumping into you to help bring you back, like ketamine, which is a tranquilizer, um, are causing some of these phenomena. And so, um, so, so those have been proposed as explanations. Right. The thing is, okay, in lots of cases, there is no detectable brain damage. The person comes back, they're just fine. There's no detectable brain damage. The brain shuts down too quickly 
for extended NDEs. And there's just no evidence for these claims. Right. They haven't been tested. They haven't been subjected to falsification. Um, all of this is speculation at this point. So you can speculate that there's some mechanism in the dying brain that produces these, but um, but no one has evidence for that. And so you can't simply eliminate and discount um, these as hallucinations unless you can tell us how the hallucination is happening. Generally, hallucinations are not consistent the way these things are. What, what other? So there's a couple other uh, areas yeah. that we need to look at, too. Yeah. So one of them is the false memory hypothesis. The idea here is you died uh, and they brought you back and you're in the hospital and you overhear a nurse, let's say, talking about what happened, talking to another nurse about what happened when they were reviving you. And you're kind of, you know, in and out of consciousness. You're not in great shape. You're you're uh, you're probably sedated. You're on pain medication, and you overhear this conversation, and then you falsely remember it as what happened. Mm. And that could produce cases where um, where people are able to actually report like conversations that happened while their heart was stopped because they later heard about those conversations and then imagined the experience and right. falsely remembered it. The problem is this is also speculative. I mean, it can't be ruled out, but it is speculative and we don't have data of this is what's happening. In fact, in some cases, we have what looks like preternatural knowledge that people really did not have a way to learn from overhearing people in the hospital. Um, this brings us to evidence of preternatural knowledge. Now, one of the stories that is in um Parnia's book, Erasing Death, it's one of two books he's got on this subject. There'll be links in the show notes and at the Mysterious World store at sqpn.com slash mysterious. One of the stories is told by uh, a man named Dr. Tom Alfterheider, who is prominent in resuscitation science. And uh, one of the reasons he's prominent in resuscitation science, one of the reasons he took an interest in the field is because of an experience he had when he was had just been on the job as an as an intern for five days. Mm. So this is right at the beginning of his medical career. He's still an intern. He's a brand new doctor. And he's in a hospital. And this is several decades ago. And the procedures for how to revive people were not as refined as they are now. And someone, he's told to go into this person who's having a cardiac arrest. He goes in, he meets the person. The guy's eyes roll back up in his head and he goes into arrest right there. So they shock him to bring him back. And they didn't have much else to do uh, after they've shocked you and brought you back. They didn't have protocols to help keep you stable yet. And so the procedure at the time was you sit with the person and if he rearrests, you shock him again. Okay. And this can take hours. Hmm. And so um, so Dr. Ofterheider is here as a brand new doctor. None of his superiors are here. And he's left. He's the only doctor around. He's left to deal with this situation alone. And he thinks to his superiors, why did you put me in this position? Why did you do this to me? Why aren't you here to help me? Right. And so he's left here with this gentleman for hours. And the guy periodically rearrests and he periodically shocks him back. Eventually, lunchtime comes and the nurses bring in the lunch for the patient. 
but the patient is unconscious. <laughs> so he's not going to eat the lunch. And Dr. Ofterheider has been here for hours. So he eats the lunch. Right. And continues to sit there and just wait and reshock the guy whenever he's whenever it's needed. And and eventually the guy gets stabilized and he spends, you know, a long time in the hospital recuperating before he's discharged. He says to Dr. Ofterheider, you know, I know you're just an intern, but you're the one who's primarily cared for me. You're my real doctor here. I have something I want to tell you. I had this experience while I was dead. I was floating above my body. I saw you working on me. You thought, why did you do this to me? He, and then he, you said, ate, he, he thought. He, he said, you thought, huh. why did you do this to me? And then you ate my lunch. And Dr. Ofterheider said, have you discussed this with anybody here at the hospital? He says, no, I, I, I didn't want to, but I wanted to share it with you before I left, before I was discharged. And so, <clears throat> you know, we can't rule out the possibility that he somehow heard this and then forgot that he heard it. But... um Based on his report, it sounds like he knew Dr. Ofterheider's thought, so telepathic uh, mm -hmm. information, and then he saw Dr. Ofterheider eat his lunch. And, um, and, and this is when he's just out. So it's, uh, you could propose alternative explanations, like maybe he was clairvoyant and telepathic in his unconscious state. But it, one way or another, it looks like preternatural knowledge of what happened during this experience, especially the, the thought, why did you do this to me, that actually happened while he was cardiac arrested, hmm. before his heart restarted. Um, so that's, this kind of report is quite significant. This is, if, 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 if this is our best avenue for verifying this kind of experience. And so that's what the aware or awareness during resuscitation study tried to do. And they got an example of somebody where something like this happened. Hmm. Um, now they're doing the aware to study the successor. This time it's personal, um, <laughs> which is even bigger. And they've refined the methodology. They're hoping to have results next year in 2020. One of the things now, one of the things they tried to do in Aware One was they installed shelves in some hospital rooms and put pictures of compelling images on the shelf above the eye level of the people in the room. Okay. The idea was if you're really floating up by the ceiling looking down, you could see what's on that shelf, uh -huh. but the people in the room can't. And so if you can come back and say, I saw a picture of this on the shelf, that would be compelling evidence. Unfortunately, they only had the one person. Uh, the reason they what they discovered was the um, the heart attacks, the cardiac arrests were not occurring mostly in the rooms that had the shelves. Right. And so um, so there was nothing there for most of the survivors to see. Um, like one of the two people that they that had a clear NDE was in a room that just didn't have one of those. I, I think both of them may have not been. Um, but uh, in the Aware 2 study, 
they are using iPads for that purpose. They have <clears throat> they have iPads, so iPads are portable. You don't have to bring in a whole shelf and stuff. And they're going to use the iPads to show images and sounds um, during the period where the brain is not operational. And to make sure it's not operational, they're doing EEGs. They have an EEG cap they're going to slap on the person who's cardiac arresting. Yeah. And they're going to do brain oximetry measurements to measure the amount of oxygen that's getting to the brain to make sure you don't have this brain activity. So they're really trying to use higher level techniques and a broader study with more hospitals involved to try to get better data. Um, and we'll have to see what they come up with. Wow. Uh, from a reason perspective, you know, the audio evidence is is not as good as the video evidence or image evidence because you could hear things mm -hmm. if you've got brain activity. Um, but especially if you, you know, your eyes are definitely closed while you're doing this. Right. Uh, if you see things that you could not have seen with your eyes, or if you hear people's thoughts, which you cannot do normally, um, then, you know, visual or telepathic evidence would be, um, would be more compelling. I have to give a personal, uh, note on this. Uh, I did, I have not had an NDE, but I had an experience of something visual that that is hard to explain but could be explained by false memory or other things like that but when i was a child i had an uh, accident on ice skating where i fell on the ice and mm. uh, presumably had some kind of concussion and certainly had uh, uh stitches on my uh face um but while i was in the medical room uh at the ice rink i remember sitting on a cot looking across the room into through a door into i think the bathroom uh, or something and I remember they had like these applique flowers on the wall or something and sitting there knowing I did not move. And I verify this later. Um, the wall suddenly came at me very close as if I was no longer in my body. Hmm. Telescopic vision, something. I, there's probably an, a physiological explanation, but it's one of these things that's just it's very strange and mm -hmm. hard to explain. And and and, you know, that's it's. It sort of reminds me of some of this. It's not exactly the same, yeah. but I keep thinking about that. like. These unexplained things that happen during moments of physiological stress, yes, in the body. And there are other there are other reports of people leaving their body under grave physiological stress, and we'll be talking about out of body experiences in a future episode. Oh, cool! Can't wait. Yeah. All right, so so that is that's the the, that's the uh, reason perspective. Reason perspective. Now, obviously, there there is a faith element to all of this. So, oh, what you is think? <laughs> exactly? <laughs> so, what is the faith perspective on? Uh, in near-death experience? Well, the first thing to say is that these experiences, at least at the present state of our information, do not provide proof of an afterlife. Uh, they may not be real. They could be due to physiologically induced hallucination, you know, as the brain shuts down or as the brain revives, mm -hmm. um, or they could be due to other causes. Um, preternatural knowledge, though, is the strongest evidence uh, that these are actual, because if your brain is in the process of breaking, either is it shutting down or coming back online, that's not going to give you preternatural knowledge. Right. And so uh, the future research onto this, if they can get hard evidence of preternatural knowledge, that will give us hard evidence that something preternatural is happening here. Now, you could still say, I don't think it's an afterlife. I think it's just psychic experiences. Mm hmm. But it's something preternatural, and it, it, the face value interpretation of, 
yeah, this person died and then they were out of their body and they learned this stuff and they came back. The face value interpretation would be the preferred interpretation. Okay. Um, because it's it's it, you know Occam's razor. You don't want to overly complicate a hypothesis beyond the evidence. Uh, proposing, ooh, people have psychic powers as they're dying and then they come back and falsely interpret the psychic powers as an after death experience. <laughs> right. Why don't we just go with it's an after death experience? <laughs> exactly. You know. Um. So we'll have to see if if we get evidence. Now, obviously, if we don't. If uh, it turns out there's no preternatural knowledge and there are good explanations for all of these things, that doesn't disprove Christianity either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or it doesn't disprove an afterlife. There may well be an afterlife. Christianity is still true, um, but it these just don't provide evidence of it if it turns out that they're all to be explained some other way. How does this relate to the biblical picture we have of the afterlife? Well, we're not given a lot of information about exactly how the afterlife works. And a lot of the information we are given occurs in a visionary form where it's mixed with symbolism. So like you read the book of Revelation, we do get visions of people in heaven, but it's mixed up with a lot of symbolism where other truths are the focus of what is being communicated. Mm-hmm. The point is not to communicate information about the afterlife. The point is to communicate other information we're just seeing this from God's perspective in the throne room of heaven. Right. And so, um, so, and we're also not looking at the moments that people are dying and leaving their bodies and coming to be with God. That's, you know, we're seeing stuff after all of that. Okay. Um, so we're not given a lot of information. One verse that could have a bearing here is Hebrews 9.27 where it says it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So you could look at that and say, okay, well, if it's appointed for man once to die, then you can't come back. Uh, Therefore, these experiences have to be uh, something other than actual afterlife experiences. The problem with that is that's not two problems. One, that's not really the point the verse is making. The point the verse is making is you you get one life and then you experience judgment at the end of that life. Um, if anything, it's 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 directed and, and that may be all the point that that is being made. If there is an additional point, it's probably reincarnation doesn't happen right. because reincarnation was a common belief in the Greco-Roman world. So it may be uh, it may be also directed against reincarnation. But. The author of Hebrews knew perfectly well that some people come back. Jesus came back. <laughs> Jesus brought other people back. Right. Other people who were not the son of God. The Old Testament records people coming back. So there are situations where people temporarily die and then are brought back to life for a period before they die again. For for reals this time. Like Lazarus. And, like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son or mm-hmm. various other people. Yep. And so Jairus's daughter, another one from the Gospels. Um, so, uh, so the New Testament does not intend to teach that it's impossible to resuscitate someone when they have died. Resuscitations actually are endorsed by the New Testament. It's just in the Gospels, they happen supernaturally rather than right. because of a, a cardiac shocker. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, so that verse really doesn't seem to preclude this phenomenon. 
Another verse that could have a, a bearing here is Luke 16.22. In Luke 16.22, Jesus is in the process of telling the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And in the parable, Lazarus and the rich man both die. And Jesus says, and then they were carried off by the angel. So that's like how they're transported to mm -hmm. the afterlife. Well, that seems to correspond to what some people experience. They meet beings that they interpret as angels and that then serve as their guides in the afterlife. Um, like take them to the great being of love, for example. And uh, so that actually coheres well with this verse. Couple things we have to note, though. Number one, this verse is in a parable. Right. So this could just be symbolic detail. However, Jesus's parables are usually based on real life experiences. He'll say there was a king or there was a son or there was a farmer who did this. And in the real world, there are, even though he's telling a parable in the real world, there are kings and sons and fathers and farmers and fields and seeds. And so there may be, as in this parable, angels who serve as your escort, at least for some people. And uh, I don't want to get too deep into this, but is it true that this is the only parable where the people involved are named? Yes, this is the only parable where we have a named figure in the parable, Lazarus. And we given the... The subject of can you send Lazarus back to tell my brothers is one of the requests of the rich man. Yeah. And since there is a Lazarus who comes back, some people have questioned to the extent, how much is this a parable versus a real account? Right. Right. That's the, so that's always a possibility as well. Yeah. This. OK. Um, so also one other difference potentially is that um, this is before the resurrection and thus before Christ opened heaven. And so the afterlife could have worked a little differently in the era that the parable is describing from the way it works now. Um, but in any event, the verse certainly doesn't count against uh, what people are reporting. If anything, it coheres with them. OK. So um, then we come to well, what about the non-Christian interpretations of these events where people, um, you know, let's say you're a Buddhist. And you in, encounter um, a great being of love and you think, oh, it's a bodhisattva, a bodhisattva right. being an almost Buddha who deliberately delays enlightenment in order to be able to help other people. OK, um, well, uh, OK, if someone came back and thought they saw a bodhisattva as the great being of light, I would say from a Christian perspective, um, what they I'm, I I. I there are aspects of their experience that they're misinterpreting um, because reincarnation actually doesn't happen. But uh, maybe, I mean, they could have met a respected religious figure who mm -hmm. was going to serve as their personal helper at this moment, or they could have misunderstood. They could have met Jesus and thought it was a bodhisattva. Um, the, one of the things about these experiences is they all are brief. We don't have hours long experiences yet, but hmm. we may because it is now becoming possible to revive someone up to six hours after their death without brain damage. Wow. Which we will talk about in a future episode. <laughs> um, but uh, and you can also read about that in Parnia's book, Erasing Death. He talks about this. Hmm. Um, but uh, 
you know, these are very brief experiences. And apparently whatever people learn in the afterlife, at least based on these NDEs, it's not all simultaneously downloaded all at once. You don't get all the mysteries of the universe all at once. And so if you're just having a brief learning experience in the afterlife, there could be things that you just misinterpret based on your expectations. You expect to see a bodhisattva. You see a great being of love. You think that's a bodhisattva. And you get brought back before it's, oh, by the way, that's not a bodhisattva. We've seen that in in the, in the Catholic context where saints have reported um, apparitions or visions, which later were contradicted by church teaching or the definitions of doctrines yeah. and that sorts of things. And and that brings us to, and, and so it could be just the person wasn't dead long enough to be corrected about what they were seeing. Right. Um, it also could be based on uh, post-resuscitation overlay based on their personal or cultural beliefs. Um, because uh, if you have a mysterious experience and you, that's outside of your body without the benefit of your brain, and then you get back into your body, your brain has to make sense out of that experience. And it's likely to interpret it in terms of prior, um, even if you can't explain it exclusively in terms of prior beliefs and expectations, those may play a role in how you process it. Mm. And this is something, as you mentioned, the church recognizes. In fact, if you read the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's document on apparitions and how to evaluate them, it says that the consciousness of the seer may add some details. Right. right. Um, and so it could be you're back in your body, your brain's trying to process this unbodily experience, and there's some overlay based on your personal or cultural beliefs. Okay. Um, also, uh, there may be errors in your perception of this because you've just been through a very traumatic event. And so, uh, you know, you, you may have some brain damage or something that is or at least malfunction that's causing a problem with some of your assimilation of this experience, even though it wouldn't explain all of it, especially mm -hmm. if there's preternatural knowledge. So there could be an admixture of other things in some of these cases, like somebody like the one I mentioned, oh, I heard this, I was going to have a baby, but then I miscarried because the baby got hesitant and so he's going to be reincarnated or something. You know, that could explain that kind of thing. The right. fundamental experience could be true. I left my body. I had a life review. I met this being of love. I came back. But some of the more detailed aspects of, oh, I heard this or that, that may be one of these other things producing it. And uh, so are there other uh, factors at play in the, the faith perspective? Yeah. Um, so one of them is, well, what about hell? Mm. I mean, we have heaven in on on the table here because people report seeing the beautiful city or the great garden or things like that. Yep. Um, and they report an experience that is coherent with uh, modern some, some modern understandings of purgatory as an encounter with Christ where you have a review of what you did and you serve as your own judge, mm -hmm. you know, and you have this more an organic experience of assimilating everything you did rather than a sentence being handed down from without. It's more of a transformative thing from within. Okay. As you're confronted with this is a view that Pope uh, John Paul II, uh, sorry, that Pope Benedict XVI talks about in his encyclical Spes Salvi, where he mentions that some modern theologians, and he doesn't say it here, but he's one of them, 
you read his earlier books, he endorses his theory that purgatory is a transformative encounter with Christ where all the consequences of what you've done that are bad end up being burned away, leaving you a more compassionate and pure person. And so some of this could be, you know, purgatorial or purgative for people. Yeah. Um, But uh, what about hell? Well, even if every one of these experiences and most of the experiences that get reported are positive, mm-hmm. even if they all were, even if nobody came back and said anything unpleasant happened to them on the other side, it wouldn't disprove hell because you know what? Maybe the people who go to hell don't get to come back. Right. You know? <laughs> it's <laughs> um, so, a one way door, folks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so so maybe they don't. But. Um, even, but in actual fact, that's not the case. Uh, not all of the reported experiences are pleasant. Um, as early as Raymond Moody's book, he reported that some people come back and said, I had a very unpleasant experience. And he noted that this happened, especially when people had tried to commit suicide. Hmm. Um, which of course, if you do it knowingly and deliberately, um, is a mortal sin. So right. um, people, if if you killed yourself, not necessarily in mortal sin, you may have been under a psychological factor that lessened your culpability, but you still did had some culpability and it was made clear to you in the afterlife. Um, so uh, other sources uh, report that although it's less common, some people do come back and report terrifying experiences uh, such as an experience of just a terrifying void or hellish imagery um and uh and so so that is part of the reportage it is part of the data that there are unpleasant experiences that could point towards a purgatory or even a hell um we really one thing that's kind of tempting here is to say well ooh maybe we could do a ratio and figure out how many people get to go to heaven and what percentage of people go to hell <laughs> Unfortunately, um, we really can't draw that kind of inference from the data because at most, um, I mean, the fact most of the experiences are positive wouldn't necessarily show that most people go to heaven. It might only show that only a few people who would otherwise go to hell get to come back. Right. Yeah. Just similar to what you had said earlier. Uh, Yeah. 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 Ultimately, we shouldn't be looking to these experiences while they may confirm or provide supporting evidence for the Christian faith, they are not what the Christian faith is based on. The Christian faith is based on other evidence, arguments for the existence of God, uh, proofs of the resurrection of Christ, various other things. Um, It's not dependent on these. So whether these turn out to be true or false, natural or supernatural, one way or another, at most they're a kind of nice-to-have but they're not a proof or disproof. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line when you look at the near-death experiences? What's your conclusion? Well, in in making a theological assessment of these, um, one of the things that occurs to me, even if they're purely explained by, and this isn't really my bottom line yet, but okay. one of the things <laughs> one of the things that uh, that occurs to me, even if they're just a natural process that causes these. For most people, they are pleasant, mm. and they do open people up to thinking about love 
and what they've done in their lives and what's in the afterlife and and being judged and all of these things, even if it's all natural, maybe it's something God has built into our nature as a kind of last-minute evangelization. Hmm. We often talk about how God gives every person the possibility of salvation, even if it's in a mysterious way that we can't see or perceive. Maybe this is how he does it for some people. Hmm. Maybe some people, even if they've never lived for God, they've never thought about it, there could be something even built into our bodies that as they're dying, we start to have experiences that free us from pain, open us up to thinking about love and our lives and accountability in the afterlife that could open us to accepting God's grace in that moment. So even if it's natural, maybe it's a form of natural last minute evangelization. Maybe it's a moment of mercy to ease the transition into the afterlife. Also, the um, conception that is reported, and I kind of mentioned this earlier a little bit, but the conception that's reported here of self-judgment, of Mm -hmm. being confronted with what you've done and acknowledging it and owning it, rather than like an arbitrary judgment imposed from outside, that coheres very well with uh, a lot of modern Catholic understandings of what judgment in the afterlife is going to be like. So there are elements of this that do cohere well with uh, modern Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. In terms of a bottom line, I think NDEs, now some apologists love them and will, uh, and not just Catholic, but non-Catholic as well. Some apologists love them. Some apologists hate them. Um, (laughs) um, So I've encountered both, you know, people being very favorable or very skeptical towards them. To me, they are intriguing but they are not yet conclusive. If, preter- if evidence of preternatural knowledge holds up, then that will provide good evidence of afterlife, and that will shake up things in the world. If we get really solid evidence of people coming back with preternatural knowledge, mm. that will shake up society. Um, it would not, though, no matter what people come back with, it wouldn't undermine with these brief experiences anything about Christianity because we aren't seeing, even if this is the afterlife, we're not seeing far enough into it. Right. These people are there for a few minutes and come back, according to these experiences. It's not like they get to stay in heaven and have a tour of the a big tour of, of the mysteries of the universe. So the we're not seeing enough to contradict or confirm the uh fundamental teachings of Christianity. So it doesn't really bear on that one way or another. And finally, as I indicated. Uh, these are not the evidence Christianity is based on. It's based on other evidence that we do have in this world right now. And that's what serves as the anchor of our faith. Not these things, although it would be nice if they can provide a little extra chiming in. Okay. I just had a thought, something occurred to me, a question occurred to me that we didn't cover earlier. I'm sorry Uh to bring it at the very end, but but, um, does the length of time people report experiencing in this afterlife Vary depending on how long they were um, flatlined. I mean, to to to, to clinically dead. Does, well, does it vary? My understanding at present, and this is is that this is just suggestive. But yep. the data is suggestive that actually, the longer they stay dead, the less likely they're going to remember anything because of right. the brain trauma. You did mention so, that, yeah, yeah. So people, we didn't apply it in this way. So people may be having longer experiences and just not remembering them because when they come back and all that blood flow starts after the brain has been silent for a while, 
wham, you get more infl- information and you ca- inflammation and you can't assess the information as well into your memory. Okay. So I'm sure people are going to want to dig into this subject some more. So what are the further resources that you have for folks to check out? So I have a link to a talk by Dr. Sam Parnia on YouTube. He gave it last year in 2018, and it's part of a conference, uh, but he gives a brief talk that where he deals with some of this. Um, I have a link to, uh, and these books will also be in the the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Store at sqpn.com slash mysterious. So you can link to them there. They're all on Amazon. One of them is Raymond Moody's original book, Life After Life, that started the big trend. Um, another is Sam Parnia's book, Erasing Death. Uh, another is a shorter book he wrote a few years earlier called What Happens When We Die, also again by Sam Parnia. Then there's a book called Varieties of Anomalous Experiences. And this book is uh, uh, it's a, it's a book dealing with psychology. In fact, I wanted to say it's pu- it's published by the American Psychiatric Association, but I may be misremembering that. Um, it's authored by a pair of individuals named Etzel Cardena and Stephen J. Lynn, and it looks, as the title suggests, at anomalous experiences and the people who report them and the psychological effects of them. And one of the chapters is on near-death experiences. Okay. There are also chapters on other things like alien abductions and and stuff like that. But this is like a serious scientific work looking at what do the studies say about these different anomalous experiences that people report. And you're right. It is the American Psychological Association. Okay. Um, Also, uh, I have a link to an article where Kevin Malarkey retracts the boy who came back from heaven. So you can read what he had to say about that. And I have uh, links to uh, results from the AWARE study. It's not full results because you have to get behind a medical journal paywall for those. Um, but uh, but partial results, a summary of them uh, is provided as well as a kind of fuller look at the results along with a critique by other near de- near-death experience researchers. Because you have, not everyone thinks Parnia's uh, methodology is the best. Some people think by looking just at the um, the cardiac arrest patients, he's being too narrow. Okay. And so, uh, so others will think there's a, you can get a clearer picture if you look at data more broadly. So, uh, so you might want to check that out as well. Well, uh, so that's the, the main topic. So I want to get to our mysterious feedback. Uh, we've got some great feedback again this week, uh, from our, uh, the Lost Planet of Vulcan episode, uh, Fred wrote on Facebook, he said, uh, this was a great overview of the challenges faced by astronomers from the early telescopes to Einstein and beyond. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the images that really kind of. I think is a testament to them is how to in the in the hunt to find Vulcan, <clears throat> these guys were were looking at. These guys were ris- risking their retinas looking yeah. through the sun, you know, at these telescopes in this primitive stage. They were really putting their eyesight on the line for science. So, uh, and then on our episode where we talked about the mystery of astrology, um, Tom Carroll uh, writes on Twitter, Okay, Jimmy, I have to ask, if stars are in sen- some sense alive, do they have souls? Right. now, So in that episode, I mentioned that life is very tricky to define. And by some definitions, you know, some people would say fire 
could be considered alive, even though we don't normally consider it alive, because it it has metabolism, it consumes energy, it replicates, it does a variety of things that life does. Well, stars do too. Mm. Stars consume energy, they have metabolism, they have a lifespan, they reproduce, and they even evolve from one generation of stars to another. So another proposed criterion for life is it needs to be subject to evolution. It needs to develop and change over generations, and stars do that. Later okay. stars have more metals in them than other than earlier stars. So right. by a really broad definition of life, you could say maybe stars are alive. Well, I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying it's interesting to think about. <laughs> but if it were true that they were alive, then they would have some kind of soul because the soul is the life principle. Um, it's the substantial form of the body that keeps it alive. That's why uh, the epistle of James in chapter two says at, the point he's making is as the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead. Well, the body without the spirit is dead. So uh, you need a soul in order to be alive. All life forms, according to Catholic thought, have some kind of soul. It may not be the kind of soul that survives death, mm-hmm. but human souls do. But we don't know about plant and animal souls. The common thought is they don't. But if stars did turn out to be alive from God's perspective, then they would have souls from God's perspective. Okay. So, and then on our uh, Bigfoot episode, going way back uh, to the uh, second or third episode we did, um, Robert Pacheco wrote in a comment on sqpn.com, says, I'm a skeptic, but not all footprint casts are easily dismissed as fakes. It's intellectually dishonest to suggest otherwise, Mr. Aiken. Where's the Mm -hmm. costume? Why has it never been produced? Why trust self-described con men? Okay, so I I, I think Roberto may have uh, assumed I was taking a a more skeptical attitude than I actually do. I don't claim all footprints are fakes. Uh, I think some footprints are just mistaken interpretations of other things. Um, I also think, you know, I can't rule out the possibility that some footprints really are Bigfoot footprints. So mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not saying that all footprints are fake. I'm not saying that all Bigfoot encounters are fake. Um, in terms of the the Gimlin Patterson film, which is what we were talking about with the costume, what we can say with certainty is someone connected with this story is conning. Whether it's Gimlin and Patterson who took the video. Or whether it's the people later who said, I made the costume and I was in the costume are, are, is an open question. Um, hmm. So that could have been a real Bigfoot encounter, but we do have people willing to fess up to it. And, you know, as we talked about in our Jimmy Hoffa episode, you can't always take every confession as accurate. But, you know, there, so I can't rule this out as a genuine Bigfoot video, but, um, but there is reason to think it's not. That's all my claim is. Yeah. Somebody's lying. <laughs> yeah. So, and then it's just a bit of general feedback. Uh, John B. sent us an email. He said, uh, I've recently joined Patreon in order to support Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but this is definitely my favorite and the only podcast I donate to because I wouldn't want to lose it. I love this podcast because Jimmy does such a great job researching, giving arguments for both sides, and I just trust him because of his Catholic worldview. And he says, please consider doing an episode on reincarnation stories. They seem to be everywhere, and some of them are tough to argue unless they're all made up. And we will be doing that. I want to let you know, John B., um, They uh, we touched a little bit on reincarnation here, but we will be dealing definitely 
with individual reincarnation stories and the topic more broadly in future episodes. Uh, I know, for example, I, I we're going to be talking about The Search for Bridie Murphy, which was uh, a, a book in the 1950s uh, based on a case in the 1950s of a woman who reported memories of a past life in Ireland. And this was what popularized reincarnation in American culture. And then there was an investigation mm-hmm. and the investigation did not go well for <laughs> for this. So we're going to be looking at that and other claimed stories. Excellent. And again, John, thank you so much for your support. Um, you, you're yes. right. It, it, it is it is necessary to, to get that support from 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 listeners. Um, there, as you can uh, tell, there's a lot of work that goes into producing this this show and all the shows we do at SQPN. Um, and it just certainly would not be possible to to create this show and any of the shows without um, financial support from you folks. So we'd greatly appreciate it. Yes, uh, that, that's so much appreciated. So, Jimmy, do you have some mysterious headlines for us this week? I have two. Uh, since we were talking about the hunt for the planet Vulcan, um, I thought I would mention a couple of stories related to that. One of them is uh, a new story suggesting there may be no planet nine after all. Um, so for people who may not be aware, Pluto haters, <laughs> and I'm sorry, Pluto is a planet. Yep. It, it, and one day the International Astronomical Union will re-recognize that fact as many of its members want it to do, because fundamentally anything that is big enough that gravity rounds it, but small enough that gravity doesn't make it glow due to mm-hmm. nuclear fusion is a planet. So Pluto right. is a planet. So are lots of other bodies in our solar system. Um, but uh, the the chi- the head Pluto hater then proposed, who was the moving force behind getting uh, Pluto declassified as a as a major planet and reclassified as a dwarf planet. He then proposed, but there is another bigger one out there, uh, which he then called Planet Nine, even though there's way more than nine planets. Right. Um, should be called Planet X because it's unknown and because X is a cooler name than nine. <laughs> um, and and so he 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 claimed that just like when uh, when Uranus was found because of the orbits at Uranus and Neptune, you know, they were affecting orbits and we could deduce where they should be. Same thing. Uh, now, he thinks there's another planet out there and we can detect it and its proximate position based on. Uh, the orbits of things in the outer solar system. Okay. Well, um, you may remember from the planet Vulcan episode, that was the argument that there's a planet closer to the sun. Mercury has this weird orbit. Maybe that was expa- explained by a planet even closer to the sun. Or maybe it was explained not by a planet, but by a group of asteroids, smaller bodies that collectively had enough gravity to bend Mercury's orbit. In other words, what are called vulcanoid asteroids that are mm-hmm. still hypothetical. They're still looking for. Um, now, we it turns out the real reason for Mercury's orbit being weird is because of relativity and the sun's gravity. Um, but now we have some people looking at the Planet Nine theory saying, you know, it doesn't have to be one big planet. 
could be a bunch of those dwarf planets. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so um, the uh, so the idea is maybe there's a big like elliptical disk of outer Oort cloud objects, including comets and asteroids and dwarf planets and things like that. And all of that is what's generating the Planet Nine effect because they haven't found it. So you can check that out. And to my mind, that would be great. I mean, I'd love to have a new planet one way or the other. If we get a new big planet out there. It'll force reconsiderations of these issues, and that's good, and it's always cool to have a new planet. But if we don't have a new big planet out there, it's nice revenge for the guy who tried to kill Pluto. <laughs> um, other big story, another space story, uh, deals not with our solar system, but with the uh, center of our galaxy. At the center of our galaxy, there is a giant black hole, like at the center of most galaxies, Uh Ours is called Sagittarius A star. Um, it's called Sagittarius because that's the constellation that the center of the galaxy is in. And so the big black hole at the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A star, is one that we've actually been able to image in significant ways. We can see things going around it, and we can see things hmm. falling into it. Hmm. And it's really fascinating to look at the orbital tracks around the black hole at the center of our galaxy. It's amazing. Um, but you can look at that, some of that up on YouTube, but, um, recently they detected some emissions that, uh, radio jets from Sagittarius A star that look like they may, that look like the black hole may be pointed directly at us. Hmm. So <laughs> fortunately it is over 20,000 light years away, so it's not a danger, but black holes do have poles that point in different directions and the radio jets they've seen from it may indicate it's pointed at us so be careful the black the eye of sauron is watching <laughs> excellent so uh those are our two headlines um before we before we uh, end the episode folks as i like to do i want to again to take a moment to thank our patients who make the show possible like i said uh and today you know of course we want to make sure we thank by name some of them every week and this week we're thanking Leela K, Matthew G, Bob M, Paul B, and Les H, and John B, who, who sent us this feedback through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. They make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at sqpn.com. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. Uh, give us, send us your feedback on this episode. I'd love to hear what you have to say about the mystery of near this experiences. And uh, Jimmy. Yeah, I also wanted to mention on one of the new things we're doing for our patrons on Patreon is we're giving you a chance to vote on upcoming episode topics. So one of the benefits you'll get in exchange for your support is um, the ability to help us pick upcoming topics. So thank you very much to all our uh, supporters. That's one of the things we wanted to do for you. Excellent. So, uh, and like I said, let us know about uh, what you think about this topic. But if you've, even if, especially if you've had a near-death experience, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you've experienced. Uh, that would be a great addition to this topic. Um, so, how do you do that? Visit sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave some feedback on the episode in one of those two places. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback and remember to like this episode on on the jimmy akins mysterious world facebook page 
uh, retweet it on Twitter where you find it there. Share the podcast with your friends. Write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That all helps us grow the community of listeners and to reach more people. That's why we do it. You can find the links to our uh, discussion and our further resources and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. And thank you. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.